Hi, my name is Bob Hurt, and I am your host of the Baseball Doesn't Fall Far From the Tree podcast. Join us as we explore the national pastime and conversations with guests close to the game. This is my invitation to you to play ball. For this episode, Bob will be speaking with the very popular sports author, Peter Golenbach. He has 48 books published in his name from baseball to NASCAR. He's had a front row seat to the Bronx Zoo, and he's listened to the whispers of gods. So find that comfortable seat and be a fly on the wall to baseball history. Welcome to our podcast, Peter. Very, very much. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah. Now, uh, I guess what I want, you know, I did a lot of research. I watched a lot of your interviews, of course, read a lot of stuff on the uh, on the Internet. And um, in several of your interviews, you mentioned the baseball gene. And uh, what would you call? I I think I got the baseball gene. What would you call the characteristics of of the of possessing that? When you were a teenager, uh, it's a game you loved uh, uh, after that, and it's a game you still love today. So, fairly simple. Well, I think then I know, then that just clarifies that, that I also have that uh, baseball gene. Um, can you, um, and like I said, I've, a, a lot of the answers I might know because I, I did listen to a lot of your interviews, but uh, for the benefit of our listeners, I'd like uh, to ask you if you could share the circumstances behind writing your first book, Dynasty, the New York Yankees, 1949 to 1974. Sure. Um, it was it's sort of a minor miracle. Um, I graduated from NYU Law School. And I worked as a lawyer for six weeks, and uh, I quit. And I saw an ad in the New York Times for somebody who wanted a lawyer and a writer. And I called the telephone number, and it turned out it was Prentice Hall. And what they wanted me to do in the summer of 1972, they wanted me to be the assistant editor for the Wage and Price Controls uh, book every week. Uh, President Nixon had new wage and price controls, and I was supposed to translate that into English for banks and for lawyers and so forth. And I did that for six weeks. And after six weeks, I happened to one lunchtime find a, uh, a sort of a, a catalog of Prentice Hall's trade books. And uh, I thought to myself, well, you know, when I was a kid, I had read The New York Yankees by Frank Graham. Uh, it was published about 1947, between 1949, 1964, 16 years, 14 Yankee pennants, nine Yankee World Championships. This is the book that I should go down and talk them into giving me a contract to write, the sequel to The New York Yankees by Frank Graham. And so, sure enough, I walked down to the main floor where the trade book division was, and I knocked on the door of Nitin Checo, who was the editor, and I started to tell him what I wanted to do. And it turned out he was a Yankee fan, like I was. 
Um, I often wonder if he had been a Red Sox fan or a, you know, a Brooklyn Dodger fan or some other fan, uh, what would have happened. But as it turned out, uh, I was able to talk myself into getting a contract. And I spent the next three years um, on the road interviewing all of those Yankees uh, from the years 1949 to 1964. And in 1975, I published my first book, which was Dynasty. Yeah, I actually own a copy of that book. It, it, it's funny that um, my wife's stepmother's father played in the Yankee uh, system back in the 40s. I think he made it as high as double A. And uh, yeah, yeah. He um, he also played in the Pioneer League, I guess. I think that might have been like single A, but he played. Uh, uh, he was actually from uh, San Francisco and uh, he actually met the, uh, you know, his hero, of course, was Joe D. But he had met the uh, DiMaggio's because of, you know, San Francisco. As you know, San Francisco, uh, you know, his parents had a, a place out there. And um, she sent me a bunch of books that um, she got from him. And one of them was Frank Graham's uh, The New York Yankees, which which I must admit I haven't I haven't read yet. I've been reading through all the other books. In fact, she gave me a book. Um, the one on DiMaggio um, was it proud to be a Yankee, and uh, what I yeah proud, proud to be a Yankee right yeah proud to be a Yankee yes and it was actually autographed. So you know, I called her up and I said, Nancy, I go Nancy. I said, you sure your dad wants you know uh, meant to send me a copy of this book? And she goes, Yeah, why? And I says, Well, Joe DiMaggio signed it. She says. Oh yeah, he knew that. He wanted you to have it. I'm like, I thought that was great. But um, I, after listening, because I know you had mentioned before about about the book, I'm going to have to make it a point to um, to put it into my rotation rotation of books I have to read. Um, so uh, you you wrote that book, and I guess that was that was pretty successful, right? That got you got you started. I mean. It also got me a job at the Bergen Record as uh, first as a somebody who covered the towns, and then later uh, I went to the copy desk, and after that I became the assistant night news editor. And I had every intention of uh, continuing my career uh, with newspapers until one day the phone rang, and it was Billy Martin. Um, business manager, wanted to know, did I want to write Billy Martin's autobiography? Apparently, Billy had liked what I wrote about him in Dynasty, so he picked me to write his book. And then, as it turned out, he couldn't write it at that time, so the business manager had one other client, and that turned out to be Sparky Lyle, who was the relief pitcher for the Yankees. So he said, how would you like to write this book with Sparky instead? And I said, well, why would anybody care what Sparky has to say? And he said, look, look, spring training is starting in, in Fort Lauderdale. Hop on a plane, come down to Fort Lauderdale, sit with Sparky, talk to him, and see. So sure enough, I hopped on a plane, went down to Fort Lauderdale, and I'm standing in the Yankee clubhouse with Sparky Lyle, with Billy Martin, Reggie Jackson, Sermon Bunsen, Catfish Hunter, 
Marky Reed. Now, I lived at the time in Inglewood, New Jersey. He lived in Cresco, which was two towns over, maybe 12 minutes away. Right. And so, before every home game, I would go over to Sparky's house, and we would sit and talk for an hour or two. And we did that for the entire season of 1978. And of course, you know what happened in 1978. Oh, sure. Got fired in the middle. Bob Lemon took over. Uh, the Yankees ended up in the World Series. The Yankees beat the Dodgers in the World Series. The whole thing was both tumultuous and incredibly wonderful. And um, the other thing that I hadn't realized when, when I first, Sparky and I first got together, was that Sparky was fairly angry with what Steinbrenner had done to him. So Sparky was making $140,000, and, and he had won the Cy Young Award in 1977 as the best pitcher in baseball. And over the winter, George Steinbrenner signed Goose Gossage to a contract for $2 million. And of course, Sparky knew, since he gave Gossage the $2 million, that he was going to lose his job, which is exactly what happened. Uh, if you remember the last game of the regular season when your scrimmage was up and uh, who was on the mound was Goose Gossage and your scrimmage popped out to Nettles third to uh, end the game and win the pennant for the Yankees. Anyhow, Sparky was sitting in the bullpen. And so Sparky had no problem telling me and the world what was really going on behind the scenes with the Yankees. Oh, I bet. And of course, that, that book came out in October. Uh, wow. 19, 1975, I believe, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, it was the nope. 78 season. Oh, yeah, yeah, what am I saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah it had to be yeah. after that. The 1979. 79, so, that's... What? We sold, we sold 220,000 books in our cover. It yeah. was really something. It was really, really something. And then after that, Billy was, uh, you know, fired for the second or third time, and he was ready to do his book, and we wrote number one, and number one was a bestseller for 14 weeks. So, pretty much I had three books and three bestsellers and a career. Well, yeah, you certainly did. I mean, uh, the Bronx Zoo is... <laughs> the Bronx Zoo is actually when I got my first exposure to you. I remember reading that, and... Um, I also, and I own a copy, of course, which you have signed. I sent it to you to sign way back when, and and um, I used I were I spent a summer working in uh, the Somerset Patriots uh, press box, and I got to um, yeah, I got I got to yes, I was. And what was great about it is um, the year I was there was the year after he retired as manager, so he's you know he would go down you know, uh, or go to the different luxury boxes and mingle with uh, the customers. And then he would come in the sure. press box when the, you know, the food was there. And he used to, yeah, I had a good chance to to talk with him and everything. But, uh, oh, yeah, and I remember um, when you signed the book for me, I had said to him that you did. And he says, oh, he says, if you ever talk to Peter, tell him I said hello. So, I'm telling you, he said hello. <laughs> it's a little later, but he, he said hello. That's all right. Yeah. Believe me, Sparky and I have talked since. Oh, I That's bet. Okay. He's, he's such a wonderful guy. I mean, from... He certainly is. He truly, really, truly is, yes. 
Yeah. And um, then I, I also own a copy of number one, and I read that. So I started to uh, become a Peter uh, Golenbach fan, which uh, I still am this day. And I'm, I'm currently reading your uh, The Forever Boys, which, uh, as, as you know, I had interviewed uh, Randy Lersh. And, of course, you wrote a ch- chapter and you mentioned him. And uh, I can remember, what was it, 1989, I think, when, when that... Uh, 1989, yeah. Yeah, and, I say that is is I'm go that's where I'm going on vacation in uh in a couple weeks. That would be a nice place to take a vacation. Yeah. Yep. Well, to yep. see a childhood friend, so you know, he, I hadn't seen yeah. him in a while, so he moved down there. So, uh, and I'm going to go see your you know a team. You're not really happy with the the Red Sox, but they're playing my Pittsburgh Pirates. I'm a Pittsburgh Pirate no, I'm, fan. I'm, I'm perfect. I'm perfectly happy with the Red Sox. I'm, I'm fine with the Red Sox. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have a lot, you know, as you can imagine, living in New Jersey, I have a lot of Yankee uh, friends that are Yankee fans, so I know, you know, their feelings. Uh, well, don't forget, I live two miles from the Tampa Bay Rays uh, Tropicana Field. 
Oh, two miles. Wow. So I've lived here since. The great thing about the Senior Professional Baseball League is after I moved here to St. Petersburg, it occurred to me that living here is something similar to living in paradise. <laughs> so I sold, I sold my sold my house in Ridgefield, Connecticut, and I moved to the house that I'm sitting in right now in 1990. Yeah. So I've been here since 1990. It's a lot of years. Well, yeah, I've been married since 1990. <laughs> I, can, I can attest to that. <laughs> Okay. There you go. But uh, you know that was a, and I'm uh, you're you're answering some of my questions, which is good. But um, one of my questions, I knew you were a Tampa Bay. You're a Tampa Bay fan, and uh, do you have like season tickets, or you go to a lot of games there, though, right? No, I've had season tickets for fifteen years. Sure. Wow. Sure, I do. Yeah. That I'm. You know, I had never heard. Uh, you know, the announcer that you had mentioned that passed away, but it, apparently he, yeah, apparently he was uh, very well liked. I mean, uh, you know. A wonderful guy. Just a wonderful guy. Yeah. Terrific. He was 58 years old. It was totally shocking. Well, he did the game the day before he died, for crying out loud. Yeah. He That's, must have had a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. How, are, how is Tampa Bay doing uh do, what's the what are they uh, their prospects looking? I bet you can't name one player who starts on our team. Maybe you, one. You know, I Lagoria doesn't. Lagoria <laughs> doesn't. No, Lagoria's left here a long time ago. No. Well, I know you got a you got a couple guys from my Pirates. Do you still have Glasgow? Ty Glasgow, yeah, we still have. <laughs> We still have Glass now. Yeah. Let the other guy go. He's now playing in Detroit. Oh, yeah. Who was it? He was a great hitter, too. I saw him play Triple A. What was that guy's name? Uh, he, he, was, he was okay. Um, he was all right. But, uh, yeah, you, but no, he's, he's, not, he's not with us anymore. Oh, no. 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 Last year, last year I put down twenty-two bucks on him for on my rotisserie team. He managed to get himself hurt in the third week of the season, and he was totally worthless. So, oh, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. so, so you're not <laughs> you're not a fan of his, I I, I gather, right? <laughs> no, I'm sure, sure, I'm a fan of his. He cost me dearly last year. I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, uh, Meadows. Oh, that's Austin Austin Meadows. Austin Meadows. Yeah, I saw him play AAA for the Pirates. Uh, yeah, we got. Oh yeah, he can play. Oh can yeah. Play. Let me tell you, the Pirates have a shortstop right now who oh. is absolutely spectacular. Oh now, yeah. Here's the question: What's the chance that the Pirates will keep this guy for the next two or three years? Oh, of course they would. No. <laughs> <laughs> of course they would. Of course they would. Well, you know, Mr. Uh, Cole, where's Mr. Cole? Yeah. I saw Cole pitch for the Pirates a few years ago. Where is he now? Yeah. I would think with the Yankees, no? Well, yeah. and, no, he's, he's where the next place that uh, O'Neill Cruz is going to go to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Oh, he is unbelievable. I'm hoping... Uh, you know, the, I'm supposed to go see the Red Sox and the Pirates. I'm hope, and it's March 20th, so I think I'll probably see uh, Cruz play. But um, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, that kid's career for the next couple until oh, yeah. until he moves on. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Hey, you know, another thing I noticed, and you know, I was looking. I mean, you have what 48 books you've written? Would you say? Yeah. At least, at yeah. Least, yep. 
And I always thought you were strictly, you know, well, I knew you wrote other books, but um, I always I always considered you strictly a, a baseball writer. But I see that you um, you've written a couple on NASCAR. Why? Why did you choose to write about NASCAR? Somebody called me up on the phone one day and offered me a ton of money okay. to, to write a book about NASCAR. And I said, sure. <laughs> Sounds like fun. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, I went down there and they embraced me into their heart. And I interviewed all of the major. I, the first person I ever interviewed was Richard Petty. Wow. It was fantastic. And uh, the book, uh, American Zoom is what it's called. It's the biggest selling uh, book ever written about uh, NASCAR. Yeah, actually, there's six it, others. There's, there's NASCAR Confidential is another one. Uh, the Last Lap is another one. Um, I, I did a book with with uh, a couple of the drivers. Right. Um, I just I enjoyed the hell out of it. There, they, there was a moment there where I was going to rent a race car. Oh, really? in the summer racing, racing in in North Carolina. Wow. But I, but I went to see one of the drivers, one of the former drivers, who was, he had a shop. And, and part of his shop was that he sold parts uh, to, to the guys who, you know, raced at the lower levels. Right. And this guy said to me, you know, if you do this, you're going to die. <laughs> well, that's I comforting. Said, what I said, what do you, what do you mean I'm going to die? He says, you know, you're from Connecticut. So you're not just a Yankee. You're a carpetbagger. <laughs> at the third lap, some guy is going to come and smash you against your, your, your rear tire and send you into the wall and kill you. Oh, jeez. Uh, that was the end of my racing career. Yeah, right would, that, that was it. That would be a game changer, I would think, definitely. That would be, yes. <laughs> yes. You know, um, like I said, I've read a bunch of your books. Well, I don't know if you know, you probably don't know. I, I came out with a book about a year ago, and I, I'm a Sabre member, so I've, I've contributed to a lot of baseball books. And uh, I, own, I own several of yours that I use as a resource. I mean, The Amazings, I, um, you know, I've, I've written bios on people that have, uh, you know, played for the Mets and uh, – uh, also, the um, what was it? The Red Sox Nation. You know, right. your your books were have been very valuable to me. But you know, aside from being very entertaining, I really enjoy. You know what? Uh, I I read it just a year or two ago. Was the Bums, and I really enjoyed that. And listening to your interviews, I mean, you had the opportunity to see uh, the old Brooklyn Dodgers play a lot too, right? When you were growing up, or. I never, I never, ever, ever went to Ebbets Field. Oh, you never went to, oh, okay. Never went to Ebbets Field, but in 1956, my uncle, Justin Goldenbach, right. called me up and said, how would you like to go to see the World Series uh, tomorrow? Wow. And I said, sure, let's <laughs> go. So I met him. I met him. The game was at Yankee Stadium. It was not at Ebbets Field. Oh, okay. And uh, it was the fourth game. Larson's was the fifth game. This was the fourth game. I believe uh, Sturdivant beat Erskine in this particular game. And after the game, it turned out that my uncle was Jackie Robinson's lawyer. Oh. So my uncle took me down into the bowels of Yankee Stadium to meet with Jackie. And that was quite an amazing thing for a 10-year-old to, to, to be shaking hands with Jackie Robinson. He was a rather, rather impressive guy. Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, 
also one of the reasons I ended up writing Bonds. Okay. You know, that was one of the questions uh, that I had, because I remember you telling the story about your Uncle Justin and you meeting Jackie. Now, you were 10 years old. Did you realize at that time the importance of of Jackie, you know, breaking no. the uh, racial... Okay. To you, he was just a really good ball player, and your uncle, he was a client of your uncle's. Was that basically what it right. was? That was entirely what it was. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, at, at age 10, so what would I have been in the fourth grade? Uh, yeah. Fifth grade, fifth grade. Yeah, I would like say that. that. Right. I, I did not have, I did not have a great knowledge. Hmm. I did not have a great knowledge of American history okay. at that time. Wow. Well, you know, I was thinking about that when I was 10 years old. My dad took me to um, a baseball banquet at Rutgers, and, one, and and I actually won the door prize, which was an autographed ball of the, the guys that were on the panel. And, you know, I went up on stage, and I shook hands with uh, one guy named Monty Irvin. So I'm, I was... I had like a flashback when I heard you talking about Jackie, you know, meeting Jackie, because, you know, uh, I would say you can't get closer to Jackie Robinson than what, you know, Monty Irvin did. I mean, he was what number, uh, number three or four or five that came, you know. The, he came a little bit, a little bit later. Yeah, but, but I mean. He was a very important part of the, of certainly the Giants winning pennants. Oh, 1951 and 1954, without a doubt. Oh, sure. It was, and, and I knew him. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, he kind of, uh, from, well, I, I wrote a chapter on, uh, you know, a young Willie Mays, and he actually was sort of, I, I, I guess you could say he shepherded or, or babysat Willie, you know, that first year. Drosher matched, uh, matched them up, That's you know. Right. Uh, that's true. Yeah. Um, in this last book that I did, Whispers of the Gods, right. there's an interview that I have with Monty in it. Uh, he and I were, went to a talk, and, and I volunteered to go pick him up at his home somewhere in the middle of Florida and drive him back to St. Petersburg. And during that trip, I had the opportunity to interview him about uh, his life in baseball. And he told me something I don't think he ever told anybody else, which was that Brace Rickey had called him to be the first, even before he had called Jackie Robinson to be the first. But he told me that he had had such terrible racism in the army from the southern officers who treated the African-Americans so terribly that he knew that if he took that job and became the first African-American in baseball, that he would have a nervous breakdown. So he declined. He turned Ricky down. And he said, I'll let you know when I'm ready. And by the time he was ready, um, the owner of the Newark team that owned him, uh, Ricky wanted him for free. Right. And the owner wouldn't sell him for free. And so the Newark owner sold him to the New York Giants for, I think, five or $10,000, which is why he went to the Giants and not to the Dodgers. Yeah, there's a, there's a good story uh about that also, because uh, Effa Manning was the, uh, you and uh, it was funny that um, he, uh, how did it go, I guess George Stoneham, uh, you know, was talking to her, and she said, you know, the, yeah, yeah Horace Stone, that's right, the, what was the son, the son's, but anyway, it was Horace Stone, and, 
And um, there was the story that she got so much money, you know, for uh, for Monty. And Monty got wind of it, and he says, well, you know, I should get a cut of that. And she says, well, Monty, uh, you know, there's a really nice uh, stole that's in, I guess, some department store, and, and, and I'd really like to have it, and it, it's going to cost about $2,500. She goes, and then there's this really nice young guy that does all our accounting, and he's been working real hard and everything, and and I'd like to give him 2500 you know, whatever the amount of money was, she said, and how much does that leave for me to give to you? And he goes, uh Zero. And she goes, and that's what I'd be able to give to you. <laughs> so it was, she, she was quite funny, but, Ma, uh, you know, Monty, Monty took it, I guess, with a smile on his face, you know, that, uh, but he seemed like a great guy. So you got a chance, I mean, being in a car with somebody and, and, uh, traveling any distance, I mean, you get pretty, uh, intimate with, uh, conversation, I would think, right? Yeah. Now, uh, let's move on to your uh, The Whispers of the Gods. That's another book that I'm planning on reading. But uh, you were influenced by another book to uh, to write that, right? You came up with the idea? Oh, without, without, without a doubt. When I was, uh, I guess, a junior in college, I was a sports editor at Dartmouth, and they would send me books. And this is one of the ones that they sent me, which was The Glory of Their Times by Larry Ritter who later I came to be good friends with. And I still think it's the most important baseball book that's ever been written. Well, it's so got it's got my vote, Peter. I definitely feel that way. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so it's interviews with all these great players who were teammates of Ty Cobb and teammates of Babe Ruth and teammates of Christy Matthews and, and teammates of Grover Cleveland and Alexander. I mean, you sit and listen to these guys talk, and, and you feel like you're back there. Right. And, you know, after I read that, I thought, you know, if I ever do, do you know, oral histories or any sort of book writing, I want to do exactly what Larry did in this particular book. And that's, that's always what I've tried to do, is, you know, make these, make these people come alive. Right. Make right. their stories, the stories be more important than, than, than the uh, statistics. I, I agree with you, and I think you do a pretty darn good job with that. You know, anything that I've read, that you definitely, uh, I, I would say all the books that I've read that I feel like I'm in the room or in the lock, well, the locker room or the clubhouse with uh, the teams that you, uh, you talk about. So I think you definitely accomplished that. That's, you know, fantastic. Yeah. Now, um, you interviewed one of the people I wanted to ask you about that you have in the book is uh, Roger Maris. It was a pretty cool story about how you got that interview. Yeah, it was just sort of shocking in a way. Um, I had been pestering Roger uh, to let me interview him for Dynasty, and he, he was just tired of being tired of answering questions from the press. Right. You know, they bucked the hell out of him as he was trying to break Babe Ruth's record. And he wasn't treated very well with the Yankees uh, towards the end of his career. And he just sort of wanted to be left alone. And so I actually went to uh, Gainesville where he had his brewery. And his brother told me, no, he's not here. He's just, you know, don't wait for him. He's, he's probably not coming. So... I drove from Gainesville to Atlanta 
to interview Cleet Boyer, who had uh, a little sort of a, a country western bar called the Golden Glove. And so Cleet, I called him on the phone. Cleet said to me, I'll meet you at my restaurant tomorrow at 9 o'clock in the morning. And so I went there at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I sat at, at his bar drinking, you know, coffee. And sat there from 9 o'clock in the morning till 9 o'clock at night. Wow. And he finally showed up at 9 o'clock at night, and he showed up with Roger Harris, which was astounding. I mean, he and Roger were the closest of friends, and Cleek was going to Japan to play one more year of ball. He was going the next day, so Roger had come to, you know, hang out with him and, and take him to the airport. So uh, Cleek took Roger and me over to a table, and we sat and looked at each other. He knew who I was. I certainly knew who he was. And uh, we said hello. And then for a couple of minutes, there's a terrible, uncomfortable silence. Whereas Roger then said to me, you want to go outside and talk? And boy, did I want to go outside and talk. And Rod, Roger was absolutely stupendous. He was, he was just fabulous. He told, basically told me everything I wanted to know about what had happened to him. Wow. And I and I know, like listening to your interviews and and reading the, who was it that uh, was it? Daniel Perry wrote a book uh, on Roger that was uh, was pretty good, but um, yeah, I mean, I I can only imagine now. Um, when you wrote the book, well, when you wrote the book Whispers of the Gods, wh who was your favorite interview? Who do you think was the uh, most enjoyable person that you interviewed? Did you have anybody? Well, it's not a question of most enjoyable. They're all they're all enjoyable. I mean, yeah. The interesting thing about having the opportunity to talk to these people is you never in a million years know what it is they're going to say. Right. And I, I have discovered that almost all of them have you know wonderful, fascinating things to say. Yeah. Um, there was one guy. One guy. One day when I was living in New Jersey, this guy called me on the phone. And he wanted to write a book with me. He was the trainer for the New York Yankees. And so he came over to the house and we talked for a good, oh, hour, hour and a half. And he told me absolutely, you know, spectacularly marvelous stories, you know, about the day that Babe Ruth supposedly called the shot. Oh, yeah. Know, and he was working he was working as the trainer for the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time when Ruth was a coach with the Dodgers. And then he asked he asked Babe, Did you really call your shot? And and Babe looked at him and basically said, Are you are you crazy? <laughs> you know? If you recall the name of the pitcher who was pitching for the Cubs at the time, he was a sort of a vicious, vicious sort of competitor. And, and Babe said, if I had pointed to center field, this guy would have thrown the next pitch and hit me between the ears. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, this was a story that proves conclusively that Babe Ruth did not call his shot. <laughs> and the other fascinating thing was is that the Dodger players wanted to know something about how well Ruth could pitch. You know, some of these players, uh, Medwick and a couple of these other guys, were teasing Ruth about his pitching ability. So Ruth said to this trainer, he said, look, you know, uh, get my arm in shape, and one of these days I'm going to show these guys. <laughs> and 
sure enough, sure enough, the day came and Ruth said to these guys, okay, I'll pitch to you. You, you, can, you can hit against me. And so he had a catcher and he went on the mound and he started throwing his stuff and these guys could not hit him. And Dave had to be 50. Oh, so yeah. he was not a young guy anymore. And, and they were just, they were, Dave Ruth was a Hall of Fame pitcher. He had a record of something like, you know, 92 and, you know, 35. I mean, he was, he was so absolutely spectacular. Oh. Anyhow, this was the interview that this guy gave me about Babe Ruth, and it was, because it went back so far, I, I thought it was one of the more important interviews among the interviews in Whispers of the Gods. Oh, I would say so. I mean, um, one of the questions I was going to ask you, but um, was... How do you prepare for your interviews? Do you prepare for them, or you just, ha you know, I mean, you know, like when, when I was preparing to interview you uh, this afternoon and everything, I, you know, I poured over a bunch of your interviews and, and book reviews and to, to get an idea. I mean, it's, I guess. Uh, well, that's what you do. Right. That's so exactly did, what you do. Yes, of course. Of course. You want to. You, you ask yourself, what do you want to know? Right, right. And you go and do the research to find out what you want to know. Okay. The other thing is, the other thing is, the other thing that you discover is if you do your homework and you start asking very intimate questions at the beginning, you know, like I understand uh, when you were in the 12th grade, you and your brother played shortstop at second base as a double play combination. So whoever it is says to themselves, oh, this guy has done a little work. He knows what he's talking about. And when he thinks that you know what you're talking about, they, they tend to give, they give you their heart and soul. You know, I agree with you. Uh, I don't know if, are you familiar with Wally Westlick? Did you ever hear of Wally Westlick? He played, well, he played for the, okay, great. Well, I became, tell you a great story about yeah, he played well. He played for the Pirates, Cincinnati, St. Louis, Cleveland, and then Cleveland. You know, Cleveland when Willie made the the catch in '51, he was at the World Series. But the funny th the funny thing about Wally Westlick is he was my father's favorite player, and um, yeah, and you know, every year, you know, my dad's birthday was. Well, you you realize you realize was, was he a Pirate fan? Oh yeah, my father was from Pittsburgh. My father was from Pittsburgh. Right, right. So understand, understand that until 1960, being a pirate fan, <laughs> you didn't end up with much success. <laughs> well, you know, so so you know, um, so I my my college roommate who was a Boston fan, uh, his his favorite uh, player was the shortstop, uh, uh, Boot What was his name? Booten Button. Oh. Don Button was the shortstop for the Red Sox during the 50s. Now, his favorite player was Booten Button, <laughs> the same way that your your father's favorite player would be Wally Wesley. Yeah, yeah. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yes. But the Pirates didn't do a damn thing for years. Not for years. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, you know, like my dad had told me about, because, you know, I... Grew up watching, of course, you know, Phil doing the, the Yankee games and then uh, Ralph Kiner doing the Met games. And uh, I remember when I found out that, you know, and I was young and I asked my dad, I found out that he was a pirate. He says, oh, dad was, you know, Ralph, your favorite player. He goes, well, he says, you know, 
Ralph hit a lot of home runs, he says, but actually my favorite player was this guy, Wally Wessler. And okay. um, the way it started is my dad, had, you know, my, my father died when he was like 77. But when he was 70, and, well, before he had bad health and everything, and I used to, for his birthday, I used he was a Steeler fan, of course, too, and I used to buy him a... <laughs> and I used to buy him a, for his birthday, I used to buy him a Pittsburgh Steeler cap and a six-pack of his favorite beer, and we'd go down to the basement. Did you ever get him one of those towels? Oh, yeah, yeah, towel? I got him the, the terrible towel, of course. Couldn't be a, a Steeler fan without it. You know, when they start. <laughs> but, but it was, um, I remembered, I remembered him talking about this guy, Wally Westlick, and I says, you know, I want to see if I can get a hold of this guy and uh, ask him if he would autograph a ball for my father. And I was able to, and he autographed a, a ball for my father and brought tears to my father's eyes when I gave it to him oh, for his sure. birth. And, uh, and then Wally and I became really good friends. He lived in Sacramento, and I used to call him uh, either a couple times a month or, yeah, I'd say a couple times a month that, that uh, we would talk. And... Uh, even to the point that, you know, when my father was doing really bad, I asked Wally, I said, and, you know, Wally lived till he was like 99. He outlived my dad. And I asked him, yeah, I asked him, I says, um, if I call you up from my father's house, would you wish him happy birthday? He goes, hurt. He says, for you, no problem. I'll do that. <laughs> so, so, so one day it was a Sunday and I called up and I was, you know, my, my parents had a, like a, an opening between the kitchen and the dining room. My father was over there, and I called Wally up, and he said, oh, I'm glad you called. You know, my son was over here, but I told him I had something important to do. So I go to my, he says, uh, I go to my father. I says, Dad, I says, somebody wants, somebody's on the phone for you. And he's like, oh, who, you know, who wants to, you know. And I go, I don't know, maybe he wants to wish you a happy birthday. So I hand the phone over to him. He's listening yeah. to it, and he goes, all of a sudden, he goes, get out of here. And they talked for like a half hour or 40 minutes. And my brother-in-law who was there, he goes, who's that talking to dad? I go, that was your, I said, that's your father-in-law's favorite player. And he just looked at me and it, it was great. But, um, but, but I guess, I guess what I was uh, getting to is that when I interviewed and I wrote uh, Wally's bio for, uh, for Saber and everything, but I just poured all over the newspapers. And I remember him saying to me, he says, he says, you know what, Hurt? He says, I think you know my career better than me. <laughs> I'm like, well, maybe. <laughs> I didn't want to tell him. I probably did. I read every statistic and, you know, all the articles in the newspaper. And so, uh, well, that's cool. I was, I was wondering how you prepared for your interviews. Uh, and, uh, no, that's, you, you confirmed, I guess, what I, what I, I try to do. Now, uh, oh, you get one shot at it. You get, you literally get one shot at it. Yeah. So you better be ready. That's right. And make, and you know what? You make an impression because it was after that interview, I guess he enjoyed it so much and being that, like you said, I was prepared that he goes, you know, if you ever want to call me up, he says, and just, uh, you know, BS about baseball, you give me a call. And for years, Sweet. I mean, Very like, sweet. Yes, yes, it was. Um, you know what? I want to get back to the um, uh, the, and then I'll I'll let you go because I know that you probably have a whole bunch of things you you need to do. But um, uh, the the book, the Forever Boys, 
you uh, yeah. you talked with and became. It sounded like uh, well, on your interviews, you said became good friends with uh, one of my favorite pirates, and that would be Doc Ellis. What can you tell me about? Well, it's funny. I've got I've got a new book coming next year, and Doc Ellis is one of the interviews in that particular book. Oh. You know, baseball from the inside or something like that. I haven't quite figured out what I'm going to call it. Mm. But Doc Doc is one of the major interviews in this particular book. Um, God, he was he was such an interesting interesting guy. Uh, he was he was a pelican, <laughs> um, and it was funny because. When I when I came when I first came to the Pelican office to talk with Bobby Toland, who was the coach, right. you know, Toland said to me, "We may have a problem." And I said, "What's that?" He said, "Well, some of the guys really don't want some strange writer hanging around." So I said to him, well, "Why don't you let me talk to the guys and tell them, you know, what it is that I want to do with this thing?" And meanwhile, Doc Ellis is walking around my chair. He's going. Loser writer, loser writer, loser writer. He's taunting me. It was just absolutely hilarious. At any rate, I went and I talked to the players on the team, and I told them the purpose of the book was to talk about how much they love baseball and how wonderful it's going to be for them to be playing the game again after, you know, being forcibly retired. And I told them, you know, if any of you have any problems, with anything that I write, I'd be more than happy to let you look at it before I publish it. And, and so the next day, having no idea whether they throw me out or not, I, I got on the bus and we went to Winter Haven and played the first game. And I was there for the entire season. And these guys were my teammates and my friends. Wow. You know, the, the funny thing, I have a, a Doc Ellis story. Um, I remember going to... Pittsburgh back at Three Rivers Stadium and they were having a it was like a charity for ALS and everything and and oh, one of the yeah. things you know they were selling game used uniforms and other th- packages and stuff but um going around the concourse they had different former pirates set up to sign autographs and the one right. one of the tables I went to there was Al Oliver there was Doc Ellis and there was Bob Friend so, you know, I had a baseball and I saw, I says, would, you know, ask them if they'd sign it. And they're like, yeah, sure. And, you know, they're signing it. And I looked at Doc Ellis and he had such a menacing look on there. I was, I have to admit, I, I, I felt fearful because <laughs> he had yeah, this. Sh- <laughs> he was, he, what he wanted to be, he was terrified. Oh, yeah. No question about it. He had, oh, he had yeah. a shave head and he had the, the two little hoop earrings on each thing. He looked like Mr. Clean. <laughs> oh yeah, he was a large, he was large. Too. Oh was yeah. yeah. He weighed about 230, 240. He was a big dude. Yeah. But he had a very, very interesting story. Basically, he told me that the first pitch that he made pitching for the St. Pete Pelicans in the Senior League was the first pitch that he ever pitched sober. Yeah, I heard that. I remember reading that. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or if not sober, not high. Yeah. Because he had an incredibly horrible drug addiction. Oh, yeah. While he was playing Major League Baseball. And he told, you know, that was a large part of what he told me about, you know, for for that book. And then he became a and, substance and, abuse counselor. And for this book that's coming. Yeah? Yeah. And then he became a substance abuse counselor or something, right? Yes, Didn't he? he did. 
Yes, he did. Wow. Yes, he did. And then he had something happen with his his insides, and, and, and he died at a very young age. Yeah. Terrible. Didn't he have something with sickle cell at one time? I, or he... I, yeah. Like yeah. But you guys were pretty... I, I, I kind of... Um, uh, well, I, I mean, I found it uh, interesting. You, you said that you considered him a, a friend. You guys were on friendly oh, terms. Oh, more, yeah, absolutely, we were. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, Rand, Randy had a lot of nice things to say about him too. So, you know, I guess yeah. that you know the persona that you know you see as a fan wasn't actually the persona that was inside the person. You can't judge a book well, by its cover. You know, if he's on your team, he's one of these guys, and if he's on your team, fantastic. Yeah. If he's on the other team, if he's on the other team, he's the enemy. Right, right. right. I mean, that's, that's, that's who Doc was. Doc didn't fool around. Well, and, and Doc was also, he, he was also somebody who, um, how do I explain it? He, 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 he had a great deal of integrity. If somebody was doing something that was either unfair or downright nasty, it made him very, very angry. You know, being an African-American in a white society for Doc was not easy at all. No. And that was part of his problem, too, is that, is that he took, you know, where a lot of African-Americans who, who, you know, shit happened to them, uh, mm -hmm. they would let it pass by. Doc did not do that. Doc would fight back. Well, you know, I, I think about, I mean, I know that um, probably in the minors, you know, minor league system for the Pirates, it was tough because even Willie Sargel said it was, you know, tough for him. But I mean, when he got up to the, uh, the you know, the Pirates up in Pittsburgh and stuff, I mean, that was a pretty, uh, well, I mean, think about that lineup from uh, what, 19... Also, also consider consider the, the years that you're talking about. Right. You know, the farther you went back to the 50s, the harder it was. Right. The closer you got close to 1970, 1975, the better it was. Yeah. Which is not to say it was perfect at any point along the line. Right. It's just, you know, with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 5, um, you know, things got better. So it depends on when you're when it is you're talking about. Right, but I'm just saying that that team was more uh, open, I guess, to you know, because there was a lot of uh, Latin players. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. We our family team was amazing. Oh yeah. Was that the '79 Pirates? Yes, it was. Absolutely. Yep. Peter, it's a la you, it's a sore spot for me. It's the last time that they won a, a World Series for me. <laughs> it's a long. Well, if you didn't give, give coal, you didn't give coal away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, stop giving away all your good players. How about that? Yeah, we got to get an owner that has you know figured out that he's got a wallet. You know, he's got there's money in it. <laughs> uh, well, I have a sneaky suspicion your owner is making a hell of a lot of money. That's... The problem is, the problem is, you want an owner that wants to win, not get rich. Right. I mean, that's the problem. Right. You know, every, if you're a fan, you should you should be rooting for the Mets. Yeah, yeah. You know, they got a, they got an owner who wants to actually win. Yeah, no, that's true. And and they they got to stop hiding behind the uh, small market team. I mean, 
I mean, Tampa is a is I know. <laughs> I mean, already with the small market. Right, right. You either want to win or you don't want to win. Yeah. Or you either want to make a lot of money and don't care if you win or not. So, well, the, I mean, that's what it comes to. Yeah, I'm afraid. I'm I'm just starting to realize that. <laughs> I've been I've been buying the small market uh, argument for a while, but I've I've kind of thrown my hands up and you, well, know. you know what I find interesting right now, which is so absolutely fascinating. I saw Moneyball the other day for only the four hundred and twelfth time. Right, right. Um, and and here in Tampa Bay, uh, we started doing Moneyball at the beginning of the team, and now one of our Tampa Bay guys is running the Dodgers. Andrew Friedman is running the Dodgers. Okay. One of our Tampa Bay guys is running the Red Sox. Another of our Tampa Bay guys is running the Houston Astros. So, so I mean, our Tampa Bay way of doing things is, is spreading around the league. So, so you know, there are certain big market teams, the Yankees, the uh, Mets. Uh, there must be others. The Dodgers spend a lot of money. Right. Um, you know, there, there are those three teams, and then there's everybody else. Right. So with everybody else, the question is, do they want to win, or do they want to make a lot of money? Because you can make a lot of money with a team that plays, you know, 500 ball. Yeah. No. But you don't win. Yeah, if you're just worried about getting people to, you know, uh, what are you, fannies in the seats, I mean. That's right. You can do that. Yep. I mean, yep. uh, I mean, the pirates are great ones for having fire fireworks nights. I think they have one every week. <laughs> and so, but yeah, they're not. I don't think attendance is. I think people are starting to really, uh, you know, catch on with that. But uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, well. All right, Peter. I really appreciate you taking the time out. You're very, very welcome. I really appreciate, and like I said, I admire you. I know that you probably hear that all the time, but your writing is, has done a lot for my writing, and I, I really admire, and, and that's why this was even more enjoyable. So, uh. Well, that's very sweet of you. Thank you very, very much. I enjoyed it immensely. You're welcome, and, uh, you have a fantastic. Okay. All right. All right. Bye. The phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, is meant to indicate how children's qualities and talents are similar to their parents. So to honor my dad and his influence on me concerning baseball, I named this podcast, The Baseball Doesn't Fall Far From The Tree. If you have any questions about today's program or interested in ordering our book, Intelligent Influence in Baseball, you can contact us at rvh1971 at yahoo.com. In the words of the famous baseball owner Bill Beck, this is a game to be savored and not gold. There's time to discuss everything between pitches or between innings.